Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, January the 22nd, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again. To yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. The program features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on a continuing call by the African Union for a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. Also, Egypt has denied that President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi has visited the capital of Khartoum in neighboring Sudan. A Sudanese high-ranking official paid a state visit to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed in Addis Ababa in an attempt to resolve a border dispute. And the West African state of Senegal is poised uh, for national elections this weekend. In the second hour, we hear uh, an African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention briefing led by Director General Dr. John Nkangasone. Finally, uh, we also provide an update on the plans uh, to manufacture vaccines in the Republic of South Africa. All during the course of this program, we'll review some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with Papa Wemba from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The album entitled Foridole. Let's listen in. Vous écoutez la radio Molokai, une nouvelle de toute dernière minute qui vient de tomber sur nos téléscripteurs. Une secte ukrainienne annonce la fin du monde pour demain à 0 heure. Une nouvelle à prendre sous toute réserve. C'était un flash de la radio Molokai.
Lindo 
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Saturday, January 22nd, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we just heard the music of Papa Wemba from the album entitled uh, Four Dollars. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program, and these are some of the headlines in the Pan-African Newswire for today. Our lead story uh, is taken uh, from the Ethiopian Herald newspaper. The article by Fitzum Gadishu says that the United Nations organization is a body that was formed in the wake of the end of World War II when it was found out that the world needed to avert any kind of future devastating wars after what had happened in the five-year conflict. The world had witnessed another devastation and tremendous loss of life in the four-year conflict of the First World War. The World War One was one uh, when uh, millions lost their lives in a prolonged extensive battles in multiple war fronts using trenches and other outmoded ways of combat. World War Two was instead more modern and more sophisticated, and new means of warfare were used, including fighting jets and devastating bombs. All this resulted in not only extensive loss of lives, but also devastating damages to cities uh, that were mercilessly bombed uh, using jets. The United States was one of the major powerful forces that joined the war in the aftermath of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Eventually, the war lasted five years and involved practically the entire world because few countries managed to avoid involvement. Ethiopia was one of those countries where conflict began even before the official outbreak of World War II, but the fact that Italy joined the German forces in the war involved Ethiopia in World War. Hence, many state uh, Ethiopia as well was among the warring parties in the conflict confronting the Italian invaders. Other African troops as well were in the fight, uh, siding with their colonial masters. Thousands perished in the battles. There were active battlegrounds in the Mediterranean area with the Nazi fascists, on the one side and the forces of the Allied forces on the other. Eventually, the Nazi fascist axis was defeated to bring to a complete and unconditional surrender of the Japanese forces. The alliance had to drop two hydrogen bombs newly fabricated in the United States at the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Only then was there a total and immediate surrender of the Japanese, and the end of the battle on the Asian front was declared. Subsequently, the winners then sat down together to begin to think of the formation of the United Nations organizations, but remembering that the League of Nations was not very successful and even led to World War II, they conceived this body as a better one capable of averting all the future wars. They vowed that from now on, there would not be wars anymore, and that World War II would be the last war fought on Earth, and that it was the war to end all wars. While preparing the Charter of the United Nations, they devised a system in which five supreme leaders called the Security Council of the UN would act as a sort of maximum executive body that would discuss and decide on urgent and dangerous developments on the planet with the specific objective of averting threats of armed confrontation or conflict. Each of the five members was entitled uh, with uh, what was called a veto power that would paralyze any move that was not accepted by all unanimously. 
They agreed that big decisions on international security would be taken only if all five agreed with one voice. If any one of the five did not agree, the decision would be suspended or canceled. Since the foundation of the UN system continued to decide the fate of the world, the United States, Russia, China, the UK, and France, as members of the United Nations Security Council, have continued to pass all the major international decisions that have affected the entire human community. But this system has also been criticized as having paralyzed the body from acting effectively due to political differences. Only on certain occasions did all five agree to take measures pertaining to threats of war. It is now almost eight decades since the end of World War II and the formation of the United Nations. In all these years, there have been many fundamental changes in the world that the body did not envision. In, in fact, the world has transformed beyond recognition. There has been tremendous scientific and technological advancements in the world. Moreover, there has been tremendous growth of many countries. So many new countries have joined the international community of states with the decolonization of the world. New sovereign states have come to the fore, while the population of the world has also grown by leaps and bounds. And you can read uh, this article in its entirety on the Pan-African Newswire website. In other news, uh, the Egyptian ambassador to Khartoum in Sudan denied reports about an unannounced visit of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to Sudan on, on earlier today. Uh, ambassador Hussein Issa uh, told the Sudan Tribune earlier today that the reports about the Egyptian president's visit to Khartoum were unfounded. If there is a visit to Sudan, it will be announced officially, Issa added. The media outlets in Sudan reported on Saturday that President al-Sisi would conduct a one-day unannounced visit to Khartoum uh, today, accompanied by Director of General Intelligence Abba Kamal and a number of ministers. The Egyptian president and his government are perceived in Khartoum as the supporters of Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who carried out a coup against the civilian government. Egypt is the only country that refused to join regional and international coalitions led by the United States to press the junta to restore the civilian-led transitional government. Since they have been overlooked in the ongoing efforts to settle the Sudanese crisis, Ambassador Issa accused unnamed parties of spreading <coughs> spreading rumors against Egypt these days, pointing to false reports published recently about the suspension of visas uh, to Egypt and the clash between Sudanese students and Egyptian security in Cairo. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, Mohamed Hamdan Delglaw, a.k.a. Hermete, deputy head of the Sovereign Council, travels, uh, started a two-day visit to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, with the objective of discussing strained relations between the two neighbors. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project, a giant new hydropower dam on the Blue Nile, the Al-Bashaga Triangle border area, and accusations of support to the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, have created tensions between the two countries during the past two years. During his visit, Hamedi uh, will discuss uh, bilateral relations between the two brotherly countries and ways to strengthen and develop it in all fields in the interest of the two countries, said the official news agency. 
after his arrival in Addis Ababa. He was welcomed at the Bele International Airport uh, by the Ethiopian Defense Minister Ibrahim Bele and Director General of the National Intelligence Security Service, Temeskin Terohu. Sudanese ambassador to Addis Ababa also was at the airport, according to the Sovereign Council. Daglo will meet uh, the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to discuss bilateral relations. On January the 19th, the head of the Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah El-Bahan, received a call from the head of the UN Peacekeeping Department, Jean-Pierre Leroux, to discuss the modalities to replace the Ethiopian troops in Abiy with peacekeepers from other countries. The replacement will take place between February and March of this year. Sudan last year requested the withdrawal of Ethiopian troops following border clashes between the two countries. Recently, the Sovereign Council directed to open the crossing border to allow gas trucks to resume activities between the two countries despite the border closure since July of 2021. And uh, finally, in this segment, um, in Senegal, local elections are taking place tomorrow and what many see as a test for President Macky Sall as well as the opposition. Several government ministers are running for mayor in Senegal's more than 500 municipalities and 46 departments. Ahead of the vote, Dakar residents uh, have been sharing their expectations. In Dakar, for some, it is well-maintained because there are green spaces. There is security, as in the city of Dakar. But on the other hand, in the suburbs, you don't find all that. There's vagrancy, banditry, aggression, insecurity, and pollution. We expect the mayors who will be elected to remedy all of this, said Ndai Kadi Fall. Another resident, Papa CC, wants politics out of city management. He said, if tomorrow in Dakar we have a mayor who is an opponent of the state, the state should let this mayor work because cities should be managed by mayors, whatever their political position. The previous mandates did not bring anything. They don't bring anything because it's a bluff to me. And most of the time, you have to be with the government to work. Uh, when you are not with the government, you are very often blocked in your projects, accuses Wali Diabira, another resident in Dakar. Health Minister Abdullahi Jufza, an ally of the president, is running for mayor of Dakar. He is facing five opposition candidates, including Harsh Saw critics, uh, Bartolome Diaz, uh, who is embroiled in a court case over his alleged connection to a shooting which took place a decade ago. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs, like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. All you need to do is log on to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, 
have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, uh, January 22nd, uh, 2022. All you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal by logging on to our website at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Not only can you have access to today's program, but well over a thousand other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs, and websites on social media networks. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. That was uh, Detroit's own Anita Blaker with uh, the tune entitled Rules. And uh, right now, I'm going to move into the briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Director General, Dr. John Nkegason, uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, delivering his uh, weekly uh, briefing on public health and the status of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic on the African continent, as well as uh, the rollout of uh, various uh, vaccination programs across the continent. Let's listen in to the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Four five five zero two three one zero plus two five one nine four five five zero two three one zero. Alternatively, you're quite free to come through live and ask your question yourselves by going to the live section and putting up your hand. Once you are then asked to give your question, please start by identifying yourself and your news agency before you ask your question. Alternatively, still on this platform, you can utilize the question and answer section. All right, so those are our housekeeping issues for today. We are expecting to be able to come through to you in French as well as English, but we will update you as the program goes on. But for now, let me invite the director of the Africa CDC, Dr. John Kengasong, for his usual Thursday morning brief. Dr. John, good morning, and you have the floor. Thank you, Wayne, and uh, greetings from the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And as usual, um, it is my pleasure to bring you the update of the situation of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic on the continent. As of today, uh, the 20th of January, a, a total uh, cumulative number of 10.4 million cases of COVID-19 have been reported across all 55 member states. Of that number, 235,000 individuals have unfortunately uh, died. If you look at the trends of last week, uh, we continue to monitor that, that trend. We have uh, a total of 48 countries, sorry, I beg your pardon, 46 countries that are now reporting the, the food wave. And eight countries are way into the, the feed wave now because the number uh, uh, is small. The eight countries, I would list them. They include Algeria, Benin, Congo, Republic, Guinea-Bissau, Kenya, Mauritius, Somalia, and Tunisia. In terms of Omicron, uh, 40 countries, that is 4-0, have now reported the presence of the Omicron virus in the country. When we compare the trends from last Thursday when we met to today, uh, that is what we call the week between the 10th and 16th of January, um, and compare that with the previous week, that is the 3rd and the 9th of January, we observed the following trend. A total of 249,943 new cases have been reported. And that represents a decrease, a decrease of 20%. <clears throat> the number of countries reporting the highest number of new cases include, or the regions include Northern Africa with about 44%, South, 
Southern Africa, 30%. East Africa, 15%. West Africa, 8%. And Central Africa, 3%. When we now look at the number of deaths between last week and this week, we observe that there have been a 4%, 4% average increase in the number of deaths, resulting in a total of 2,791 2, new deaths. That, that compares to 2,688 deaths last week. If we now look at um, the four weeks period, that is the period between uh, the 20th of December to the 16th of January, we observed the following, an average of 0.3% average decrease in number of cases and with the following uh, regional trends, 70% average increase in Northern Africa, 53% average increase in East Africa, 33% average increase in West Africa, 21% decrease in Southern Africa and 0.1% decrease in Central Africa. In terms of new deaths, we've observed over the four weeks period a 34% average increase in the number of deaths with the following trends in the most populous countries. Nigeria, about 215% increase. Kenya, 107% average increase. South Africa, 70% average increase. Ethiopia, 39% average uh, increase, DR Congo, 30% average increase, and Egypt, 11% average decrease. In terms of testing, 900, uh, sorry, uh, 92 ta- uh, million, 92.8 million uh, COVID tests have been conducted cumulatively since we started this pandemic. And last week alone, 1.4 million new tests were conducted. In terms of uh, the vaccine acquisition on the continent, as of today, a total of 572 million doses of vaccines have been delivered on the continent. Of that number, a total of 353 million doses have been actually used. Our coverage today, that is the number of people that have been fully vaccinated, stands at 10.4%. Again, a few countries, just to cite that those that are making good, remarkable progress, uh, Egypt is at 22% of the population that is fully vaccinated, Morocco 62%, South Africa 27.3%, Mozambique 27%, Nigeria uh, 2.5%. Uh, in terms of AVAT, a total of, uh, that is the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, a total of 35.8 million Johnson & Johnson doses have been delivered to 30, 35 African countries. And I did promise last week that I'll come back to you with a question of how many doses have expired. Uh, our records indicate, uh, as far as we know, uh, that about 2.8 million doses of vaccines have expired. So that represents a 0.5% total number of vaccines that have expired on the continent. And these are mainly vaccines that were uh, donated 
or, uh, uh, and donated and came with very short notice. Important to note that none of the vaccines that were delivered through the, the AVAT platform, that is the Johnson & Johnson doses of vaccines that were procured by uh, the member states themselves have expired. So I just wanted to be sure that I end on that note because I took a promise that we'll find uh, the answer and get back to you. Thank you, Wayne, and over to you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, that was Dr. John Nkengasong, who is the director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So we are now moving into our question and answer section. And um, I'm just waiting for your questions, colleagues, because I don't have any. Um, while we are waiting for that, let me remind you that uh, we have French interpretation, and so you can select the language of your choice. Just checking again for your questions. All right, let me put uh, one of my own uh, while we wait for your questions to come in. Um, but in fact, I see now that Sarah Jerving has put up her hand. So, Sarah, you are our first caller today. Please go ahead with your question. Thanks so much. Um, how many countries are using self-administered COVID-19 rapid antigen uh, testing, yeah, specifically the self-administered ones? And uh, why isn't this uh, being widely used across the continent? Um, and then could you also just uh, talk a little bit more about why you think the AVAT uh, doses have not expired? So, uh let me start with the second part of it. I think it has to do with a long shelf life that uh, the, the vaccines come with. And uh, 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 it's really um, a, a major, I mean, these vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines that we uh, procure from uh, AVA do really have a long shelf life. I think that, that is important. Second is that uh, perhaps this is the, because this is, uh, uh, these are single shots where uh, people come in once you get their shot and that, that, that is it. The other vaccines require that you actually program it in such a way that there's one dose uh, for the, uh, there's one shot for the first dose and second. In between that, a lot can happen that uh, uh, in terms of people not coming up, up for the second dose and that, uh, that leads to the expiration of the second uh, dose there. So it's very possible. I don't have the exact uh, uh, reasons, but those will probably be most uh, of the reasons that, 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 or the main reasons that the, the Johnson and Johnson uh, AVAT doses have not expired. In terms of the, um, the antigen test, I will not be able to give you the specifics of, of uh, uh, the, the self-testing, uh, but I believe that we can definitely get more information from our lab colleagues and, and share that with you. Um, in terms of self-testing, uh, which I believe should be uh, the, the, the way to go in 2022, decentralized testing and make it self-testing so that people can know their status and actually isolate themselves. That is the only way uh, to continue to arm the community to be in control of this pandemic. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Let's say hello to Coletta Wanjohi who is with FSN. Good morning, Coletta. Please go ahead. Okay. Good morning, Madam Wayne. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Please go ahead. Uh, okay. Good morning, Dr. John. Um, we talked about, you just talked about um, the expiry of vaccines. I mean, where are we headed to in such a case? Because what can we do to ensure that we don't have expiring vaccines in our hands? 
at a situation where, in a situation whereby we're still battling uh, to supply enough, and at the end of the day, also we're still battling to to kill the issue of uh, vaccine hesitancy. Where should we go from here in terms of avoiding this? So avoiding that, uh, uh, Coletta, we have issued uh, a statement uh, providing a sort of guidelines on how to uh, donate vaccines. And uh, uh, we, we co-signed that uh, guidelines with uh, several partners, including uh, Gabi, uh, the WHO, uh, UNICEF, where essentially we are saying that uh, there should be uh, two main things. One is that vaccines that are delivered should have uh, uh, an appropriate shelf life. Um, second is that the notification of the countries way ahead of time, at least four weeks before the vaccine arrives. So if you say to a country that uh, you're delivering vaccine in two weeks, and by the time the vaccines arrive at the airport in Nairobi or Addis Ababa, they clear customs, then they carry them to the uh, storage facilities and start distributing them to the, uh, the countries, it is uh, into the interior of the countries or other um, cities in the country, it is already more than two weeks. Okay, and if those vaccines have a shelf life of maybe uh, three weeks or four weeks, it is no, uh, uh, it becomes obvious that the vaccines will be expiring. So I think that is one, if we just address that piece alone, that would be very, very helpful. So we just don't have a record of, of those that have received vaccines with a long expiration date and they've actually expired. I think uh, I would actually speculate that uh, that case scenario is very limited. Okay, where uh, people have advanced notice, the plan for the vaccines, they arrive, they will be able to use it. All right, uh, thank you. Let's go to Lucia Blanco, who works with the International Spanish News Agency, the EFE. And uh, what she has is just a request for clarification and uh, she's inquiring for you to confirm that uh, you said that uh, the expired vaccines are from COVAX and bilateral donations. So she wants clarification on that. Mainly uh, uh, from bilateral uh, donations and, and, and COVAX. That is what we're, the information that we have. So uh, that's all I can clarify. All right, thank you. Let's say hello to Alexander Winning, who is online. Alexander, good morning. Please go ahead with your question. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you very well. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm from Reuters in Johannesburg. The first question is, uh, Dr. John was just now speaking um, about an appropriate shelf life. Could you say what that appropriate shelf life might be? Um, obviously, it might vary from country to country uh, to some extent, but... Are you saying that, you know, the Africa CDC is, is, is saying that countries need a, a maximum, oh, sorry, a minimum of, of three months, of six months? How long does that shelf life need to be um, specifically? And then the second thing is, is that um, last week you mentioned you were in close discussions with Pfizer about their Paxlovid um, pill. Uh, are you also speaking to Merck about uh, their pill? Um, if uh, you aren't, um, is there a reason why you have a preference for Pfizer's treatment um, pill over Merck's one? Um, what's your thinking behind that? Thank you very much. No, thank you. Very good question. I think um, an appropriate shelf life for uh, uh, vaccines will be uh, somewhere between three months to six months so that countries can properly plan for uh, the, I mean, the logistics 
of moving the vaccines around. So I think that will make absolute sense for me. And so some certain countries are actually like are refusing totally to accept the vaccines because of exactly that. If they see that the shelf life that uh, of the given vaccine is only one month or two months, they, they, they prefer not to, to receive those vaccines because uh, it will create uh, a narrative that vaccines have expired in, in their countries. I think most countries are very sensitive to that now. Um, we no, we don't have a preference to uh, talking to only to uh, Pfizer uh, and not Merck. I mean, it's just that uh, Pfizer has been more uh, forthcoming with um, in their engagement. We we, we plan to engage uh, uh, both both uh, companies equally. It's just that that arrangement is far advanced, and uh, that is the Pfizer arrangement is far advanced. If you recall, Pfizer was uh, very upfront saying, look. We want to make this available. We also want to uh, share uh, uh, technology so that this can be produced uh, more regionally and more globally. So I think um, with time, if we nail this uh, down and finalize the, the, the password of the arrangement with Pfizer, I'm sure we'll engage um, with Merck as well. Thank you very much, John. Let's say hello to Judith Akolo from the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation in Nairobi. And she has a question about lessons learned. So she says her question to you is, um, when we compare the duration of the Spanish flu of 1918 to COVID-19, is there anything that we did not do that if we had done could have helped us to deal with COVID-19 pandemic? So... uh... That's a very good question, Judith. If the people that uh, fought the Spanish flu in 1918 were here today, uh, the first lesson that they will learn is that science has advanced tremendously, uh, significantly. I think uh, the, the poor folks at that time were dealing with a pandemic that they didn't even know what it was. Okay, the, 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 if you recall the history of that pandemic, they only could analyze the genetic sequence of the virus uh, in 19, around 1930, so when, when the pandemic was completely over. And here we are with a virus that was identified uh, in, uh, first identified in uh, December, and by January, uh, uh, we, had, we knew the sequence of that virus. That is very important. That, is, that created um, an avenue for us to develop a diagnostic test and develop vaccines and uh, very, very quickly. So I think they will also be amazed with the speed at which uh, we could uh, unpack the genetic material and use that information to develop vaccine. Never in the history of infectious diseases have uh, that I'm aware of have uh, a new entity been identified and within uh, uh, one year a vaccine developed uh, undergo clinical trials, uh, both phase one, two, and three, and then get into people's arms. I think uh, that is uh, incredible. That is a lesson that um, a sharp contrast with uh, 1918. 1918 uh, flu ended within uh, one and a half year to two years, uh, but it killed the 50 million people because it was um, uh, 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 it, it kind of just took away the, the vulnerable massively. And then, of course, because it did that, it created herd immunity in the population and started um, uh, uh, blunting the spread of, of the virus. I think that was uh, remarkable. I don't recall that they had as many uh, variants as we, we, we have now, but it is natural that viruses will mutate and create variants. 
So uh, they still remain the same virus, but um, they, 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 they may have different properties. So I think that is uh, very different. So I think there's um, that, uh, again, similarity exists, of course, because it's called, the only reason it's called a Spanish flu is because uh, at that time, Spain was more open uh, to that, and then yeah, it was labeled the Spanish flu. It's not because it was uh, identified in, 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 in Spain. No, it's just because uh, at that time, I think the, the king uh, for Spain at, uh, and the uh, Spanish press was very vocal about that. It became the, uh, named the Spanish flu. So uh, some similarities there, the same uh, methods that we are using today are borrowed from that pandemic. Dancing, masking. I don't think that they had the N95 mask at that time or N94, but uh, they, the same principle apply: isolation, use whatever you, you, you have to protect yourself and cover your face. All right, thank you. Uh, let's cross over to the South African Broadcasting Corporation and say good morning to Sophie Mukwena. Morning, Sophie. Please go ahead with your question. Uh, good morning, Dr. Nkenke Song. Uh, the president of South Africa yesterday indicated that South Africa is looking at uh, lifting the state of disaster. And that simply means uh, those restrictions that are currently in place are likely to be removed. And we saw the United Kingdom yesterday doing almost the same, even going as far as uh, doing away or announcing that they do away with uh, those non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as wearing of masks. How do you feel? Do you think this is the right time to do that? Are we in the, the endemic situation or are we still having a pandemic? Oh, no, absolutely. We still have a pandemic, uh, uh, um, Sophie. Let that be no doubt on that. Let's clarify uh, one thing, if, we, if I may. An endemic situation doesn't mean that um, <clears throat> we, uh, we live with a high level uh, prevalence of a disease uh, uh, or, or death. An endemic situation is where you, you have brought down the, 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 the prevalence or, uh, of the, the virus to a level that you can uh, live with. And I don't know that we... I don't believe that we have brought it down to a certain level that we can live with. Uh, now, living with meaning that uh, we still have to do surveillance, have the treatments around, and continue to vaccinate them. And in city doesn't mean that it's not going to hurt you. I mean, remember uh, that HIV, malaria are, are all endemic, and then they, they kill uh, about um, uh, one million uh, people, the two of them, tuberculosis and malaria in Africa every year. So I think being uh, moving to an endemic thing doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. It only tells you that um, the virus is with us. In other words, to put it very uh, 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 bluntly, if we declare today that um, uh, COVID is endemic in Africa, it means that that is the level that we I believe that we will live with, which is uh, with a positivity rate, an average positivity rate of 11%, which is extremely um, uh, high. So I think uh, uh, just to say that endemicity doesn't mean a good thing. It, it only means that the virus is there with us. But uh, uh, public health-wise, you only declare that when you've gone down to a certain level that um, you can only sporadically find the virus tested. We have to believe we have to leave with the fact that we may not completely eradicate this virus or control it, but we may bring it to a level that 
um, it will be like an outbreak. You hear that there's an outbreak in some parts of Johannesburg or Cape Town, then uh, you, you massively mobilize uh, resources to go there and, and, and tackle it. That is the scenario where it becomes endemic, like the seasonal flu, right? I mean, it comes in every season and then uh, disappears and stuff like that. That would be a, a classic case of endemicity. Now, whether um, I've not looked at the um, information from South Africa, I don't know what is exactly in, in the, 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 they are lifted or plan to lift, uh, but South Africa did a remarkable thing um, at the end of last year, uh, where they look at the data and they said, well, we're getting more infections from, from Omicron, but we are not um, uh, seeing a corresponding increase in number of deaths, and we are not seeing our hospitals overwhelmed. So we maintain uh, 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 will not impose additional uh, uh, restrictions there, which I think we, is a big lesson to learn, a big public health lesson to learn, and it has inspired us uh, to the extent that we look at that data also, and, uh, and we were able to use that to inform a decision that uh, this next summit of the head of state uh, should be a face-to-face in Addis if we do certain things. We impose that everybody who comes in there wear a mask, specifically the N95 mask, uh, to ensure that um, we really diminish pre- uh, transmission. With that, people that comes with the delegation are vaccinated, and that we do uh, routine testing uh, every um, uh, every day. Then we, we mitigate that as much as possible. So we continue to learn how this virus behaves and use science to inform. Uh, uh, decisions and they make policies there. So I look forward to reading more about the South African, uh, what is it specifically that South Africa plans to do so that I can properly um, uh, uh, share my, my views on that. All right, sir, thank you. Um, time to say hello to Vinicius Assis, who's writing to us from Brazil. And Vinicius says, what is the big issue in terms of vaccines expiring? And why are there countries that are still not able to use it in time? Why are countries not able to use uh, their vaccines on time? Uh, The vaccine expiration, as I said earlier, is mainly related to the short uh, expiration date. It doesn't mean the vaccines themselves have, uh, when they leave the factory, they have a short expiration date. It only means that a vaccine that is shipped to country X had arrived the country of origin and probably um, uh, stayed there for more than half of the, the, the shelf life, or, and then is shipped to a third-party country um, at a point where the, the, the expiration date was coming very, very close. So I think that is all that it means. Um, Second thing about vaccine delivery, which must be the focus for 2022, is uh, the logistics. The logistics of moving those vaccines from the airport from the time they arrive to the mode uh, to, to where we call the last mile. That is going to be the big fight this year for us to uh, uh, strengthen those systems, the delivery systems, the distribution systems, the engagement of the community. We have seen a, a remarkable uh, uptake of vaccines in settings where we engage the community, like the religious leaders, and they simply need to go into the ch- church service or the mosque and make an announcement and, and, and build that rapport with the community. Then after church services, you actually see an increase in uptake of vaccines. We also have to be innovative and bring vaccines to the population and not just 
and not only require that the population should go to where the vaccines are. In the scenario I just described, we saw that by just bringing a caravan uh, with, that contains vaccines and positioning it outside of a, a, a church um, or mosque increase uptake because immediately people left that facility or their worshiping uh, center, they moved into a vaccination uh, center and were able to be immunized. So we have to be very creative in order to facilitate uptake of vaccines. We have to be innovative in the ways we, we, we behave. Uh, of course, there will be standalone vaccination centers where people can move there and get vaccinated, but we should also have mobile vaccination uh, uh, centers where we can bring um, uh, mobile trucks with vaccines and, and healthcare workers to uh, certain populations. Thank you very much, John. We have a nice message here coming from Lillian Luwaga. And Lillian says she's just rising to say Happy New Year to Dr. John and to me and uh, to thank us for these uh, regular updates. So thank you very much, Lillian, for that uh, really nice and encouraging message. I'm seeing that Sarah still has her hand up. So Sarah, do you have a second question? I do, thank you. Um, so we've heard a lot about the concerns around expiry dates uh, over recent months, but the number, the percentage that you noted in your opening remarks seems to be very low. Um, can you put that percentage in context? Well, we're coming out of that uh, presentation by the Africa CDC this week's uh, presentation. Quite a few factors uh, coming out, but uh, the most interesting one I thought was the fact uh, that statement by Dr. John Gengasong that 2.8 million doses of vaccine that had been donated to the continent have expired. Quite an interesting one. Let's take a break. You're watching The Agenda. Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, led uh, by Director General John Nkengasong, uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, during a, a weekly briefing on the status of uh, the public health uh, of uh, 1.3 billion people on the African continent. Also uh, related to uh, public health, uh, in the Republic of South Africa, the uh, project to produce um, COVID uh, vaccines uh, jumped off this week, and uh, we're going to play you a uh, interview uh, with the South African uh, Health Minister discussing uh, this new uh, vaccine manufacturing venture. Let's listen in. Well, a new factory that is expected to produce a billion doses of vaccines annually by 2025 has been launched in Cape Town. It is the initiative of American-based South African scientist and entrepreneur Patrick Soon-Shuong. The three billion rand campus in Brackenfell will enable South Africa to produce the first batch, second-generation COVID-19 vaccines within a year and will be the first in Africa to produce end-to-end second-generation vaccines. To talk more about the factory and other COVID-19 related developments in the country and are joined by the Health Minister, Dr. Joe Tachler. Minister, what a pleasure to have you. Thanks very, very much for joining us. 
Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you. I must say, yesterday was a was a was a great highlight. I mean, we first heard about this this uh, South African-born billionaire that wanted to invest in South Africa and get this hub to create vaccines. And this was a story that was doing the rounds. And when people were thinking, is it true? Isn't it true? Is this real? Isn't it real? And yesterday, it happened. I mean, this is a big move for the continent and obviously for South Africa. Well, definitely. Uh, we have been in talks with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Sion, uh, Sun Sion, Sun Sion, for quite some time. Um, uh, sometime uh, last year, uh, myself and uh, Dr. Blayton Zimande and uh, Minister Ibrahim Patel were invited by the office of the president to meet this gentleman with very, uh, very innovative ideas and willing to bring those to South Africa. But of course, Unlike uh, somebody, you know, who just be having ideas, where we realize that we're talking to somebody who's uh, already in the field because he's already got uh, some of this innovative um, medical technology in the United States. So, indeed, uh, yesterday it was a, a very good day for us to witness the, the beginning of this uh, in South Africa. Yeah. Minister, in terms of... Um, it the timing on all of this obviously this was just the launch we speak about the fact that he wants to ensure that we do get um, these doses a billion doses by 2025 but obviously once this all gets started when will we see the first batch of vaccines coming from that factory well um, according to uh, uh, dr patrick suncion um, this uh, um, i think 2025 will be in terms of the full production. But uh, many of this, uh, as I'm saying, he's already has uh, this advanced technology operative in the USA. Um, so uh, this, this uh, innovative uh, biological uh, products, he has already put applications mm -hmm. to our regulator in South Africa, the South African Health Product Regulatory Authority. Uh, this formul formulations uh, because you need to get the license. So he informed me that many of this he has already put uh, applications. So um, I believe that it will be in stages because he did say that as early as even the end of this year, depending on approvals, he will be already some of the machines and technology will start being installed uh, as early as this year. So. I, I believe 2025 is the target for full production. So um, some of the products as early as the end of 2022, we mm. should start seeing them being available in South Africa. Which is, is, is absolutely phenomenal and it goes a far way for, um, for the fight to try and get um, Africa up there when it comes to the vaccination numbers, which we'll, we'll talk to in a short while. But obviously having a facility of this magnitude, we're going to need the skills. And this is a, this is a big issue in terms of skills, job creation. How is that all going to work? Um, I know that there was talk about um, uh, Dr. Shuang offering some bursaries as well and to upskill South Africans. Talk to us about this and the, the employment that will come from this. Well, uh, definitely there will be a lot of opportunities, uh, but maybe just to add also to say that uh, we must also uh, say to the viewers that 
that this initiative is not only for vaccines which will help like uh, what we are doing now in terms of uh, reducing uh, uh, risks of serious illness, but the technology which is looking at has the potential to actually kill the viral cells, which means that when that is uh, approved and working, uh, it can actually stop the actual pro uh, uh, continuing uh, uh, spreading of, of the COVID. So that's, that's, a, that's a point to add. Now, on, in terms of the skills, that's why Dr. Sun Xion is working with the universities, uh, the University of Stellenbosch, Cape Town, Witwatersrand, uh, and many other universities. I think in, in future he hopes to work with uh, a lot more universities. Uh, but these this three, they are already, uh, he's already signed some agreements with them, but he's already uh, starting also the uh, 100 million worth of uh, scholarships uh, through which they will be able to recruit uh, young, uh, some of them will be uh, graduates who will be doing their postgraduate studies, who will be able to do research at, at these institutes, but also they will be funding also aspirant um, medical doctors. So uh, with all this, it means that, I mean, as he said, it was a question to say, when this factory is actually working, how many people do you foresee? And he said between 400 and 600 uh, people will be employed. So and many of these will be high-level skills. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is really great as it is, you know, whether uh, sometimes people got a little bit angry with uh, South African scientists for the ones to be announcing the discovery of some variants and that, you know, that in itself is, uh, is something that we saw happening at the end of last year with Omicron and of course with Beta. I mean, this is the standard of our scientists that are actually coming forward and discovering these variants and the work that we do is absolutely incredible, no matter how angry people got about their holidays being cancelled, but the, 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 how progressive we are is something that really needs to be, it needs to be capitalized on and I do say capitalized because we need to make sure that we are at the forefront of science when we really can be with the knowledge that we've already got here. Well definitely I think it's, it's, it's quite uh, unfortunate, uh, maybe understandable that uh, people were uh, upset with the fact that uh, with the announcement of the variant in on the 25th of November last year uh, you know the, some of the world you know, uh, nations reacted in a very negative way, uh, stopping uh, travelers from South Africa. But uh, as we said to them at the time, that it was really ill-informed because uh, we need to share uh, this information as early as possible mm. so that not only uh, does it make it possible for us as South Africa to what we are dealing with, but also share the information with the world. Yeah. Uh, today, uh, because of that, many countries knew about uh, this variant, and, and of course when it descended on their shores, uh, they were ready to, to deal with it. So we are indeed very grateful, and this will add more impetus to yeah. more opportunities for our scientists. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Uh, Oliveira, Tulio Oliveira, who is our leading scientist in genomics, is already working with uh, the, the, the Institute of uh, Dr. Sun Xion.
Yeah, fantastic. I saw a photograph of, uh, of uh, uh, Dr. Tullio Rovella with, uh, with President Ramaphosa having a, a good conversation there. So I could, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall to hear what they were talking about. But that's, it, it's great in terms of that. Uh, Minister, let's get real in terms of the number of vaccinations on the continent now. It's well and good. We've got these, um, this, this perspective, amazing investment and opportunity coming onto the continent. And it, I mean, we, to put it out there, it's not just about COVID because this is TB, it's for uh, cancer vaccination. It's for a whole bunch of things that uh, will be manufactured there, hopefully coming forward. But I want to talk about the vaccine numbers here on the continent. I mean, 7% of the population vaccinated, many saying that, you know, as long as the continent remains at these levels, there will constantly be variants that are coming out. We need to vaccinate more. Why the hesitancy? What, what do you think is going on? So that, that would be my first question to you in terms of the continent. And secondly, let's focus on South Africa in your answer as well. Are you satisfied with the numbers we are at now? I mean, there's word about that we, we know we're near where we should be in terms of vaccinations as a country. Well, starting with the continent, um, I think uh, continent-wide, uh, I wouldn't really ascribe it uh, specifically to vaccine hesitancy. I believe that the, the, the major factor in, major, in many countries in the African continent, the issue of access is still a matter, is still an issue, because of the fact that uh, um, many countries could not access uh, the vaccines through an initiative by uh, President Ramaphosa when he was a, a EU chair, uh, and also uh, um, early last year when he stepped down from being the chair, the African Union asked him to continue to champion the fight against COVID. So he had already initiated a, a vaccine, African vaccine acquisition task team, uh, which is leading the process of making sure vaccines are available in the continent. They've already signed contracts, for instance, uh, uh, here in South Africa with, uh, with Aspen, uh, uh, with the J&J in, in South Africa produced by Aspen. But they've signed other supply uh, uh, contracts with other uh, manufacturers of, of vaccines. So, and, and also funding uh, formula, uh, there's a funding support uh, through the World Bank, which is also uh, assisting in that, and also African uh, Merchant Bank. So the, 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 this is the, the reason in many countries is, is still access. Um, so this is improving, but still a far cry. Uh, I think currently through that facility, they've acquired uh, or they've signed contracts for for just over uh, uh, 500 million doses of vaccines. So, uh, but this is still uh, a, a far cry from what the continent needs. Yeah. But contrary, I mean, uh, as, as compared to South Africa where, again, with, with a, a very good support from our president here to push a number of manufacturers to really make sure that this, these vaccines are available to South Africa, but also to the continent. We were able, you know, granted that we struggled in the beginning, uh, but ultimately from around May, June last year, uh, the supplies started coming, you know, in, in, in a very, very, in a very uh, speedy way. So we do have the supplies for Johnson Johnson and also the Pfizer. Um, but the problem, of course, in South Africa, at the current moment, we have the supply, we have the capacity in terms of uh, vaccination sites, vaccinators, 
what we are lacking after a very good uptake initially, uh, this went down quite dramatically. And currently we are really battling to attract people to come forward to take the doses. We're, si we're sitting now at uh, about uh, just over 45% of adults, at least with a minimum of one dose, and just over 40% of adults with a full vaccination. But we do have the vaccines and we do have capacity. Yeah. Minister, the worry of expiring vaccinations, where, where are we there? Because we know at one point it was actually like, stop bringing in vaccines. We've got too many because we haven't got enough arms to put them in. There isn't the demand. Where are we with the expiration date on these vaccines we already have? The first batches which uh, we are pushing uh, and because of the, the expiry date are the Pfizer uh, vaccines. Uh, uh, which, which will expire. I don't have the actual date, but it's somewhere in March this year. Hmm. That's the first doses which we are worried about. But uh, as uh, on a daily basis, even though it's not at the pace we, we wished for, but you know we do have an uptake of about uh, 90,000, 100,000, of which we would have, we'd have actually been happy with uh, over 200,000 uh, doses uh, being uh, administered uh, per day. So uh, fortunately, with the with the Johnson or the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, uh, there is no fear of expiring. Okay. Uh, those vaccines have got a long life, up to a year. So only by the end of this year can we worry about expiring. Yeah. In as far as Johnson and Johnson, but we still need people to come forward because we don't know when is the next wave and how is it going to be. What will be the variant? And we have seen even with this one that the vaccines have made very good protection for those who are vaccinated, protection against serious illness. We were quite quick in predicting the, the fourth wave and you know, it came a little earlier than we thought. I know you speak about a next wave. Is there a fear that you know, we, haven't, we haven't seen the end of it? I mean, have you got predictions for 2022? We, we, we haven't heard from our modelers as yet. We will be meeting with them, but just talking to some of the scientists uh, from time to time, the expectation is that, you know, um, if, if, if nothing else changes, uh, if there is no uh, very, you know, a variant which is uh, problematic, um, a variant of, of serious concern very soon, we definitely would expect a wave somewhere around May when the winter starts. Mm. And that's uh, when people start to congregate in, in, indoors because of uh, cold weather. So around that time when the flu season also starts, we expect that uh, possibly middle to the end of May going into winter. Yeah. That's when we're likely to get the next wave. It might come earlier. Just yeah. like we saw in, in, the last, in the last year. Quick questions, Minister. I'm going to fire questions at you because I think I've literally got a minute left. Um, or, or, or even if that. When will children below the age of 12 um, be vaccinated in South Africa? That we, 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 we depend on our uh, scientists. Um, uh, our, we've got a ministerial advisory committee on vaccination. They, they look at information available and they advise the manufacturers if they are, they are convinced that uh, in terms of the science and also the safety of the vaccines as we, they learn from other countries uh, that it is safe and it's necessary. Okay. So they will give the necessary advice. Nothing in the pipeline is yet, so we're still waiting not, on not, advice.
Minister, yes, very quickly, stage, no. very quickly, um, the, 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 the national state of disaster, is it really still necessary? I mean, we're approaching day 666 of the lockdown tomorrow. It's not a, not a very nice number, triple six, but is it necessary? What is necessary is some uh, control of uh, especially basic protection uh, 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 in terms of public health. Wearing of masks uh, being uh, necessary, uh, uh, avoiding crowds, uh, big numbers of meetings, and so on. So those are the kind of controls still required. So we're looking at how else we can be able to still help the country in terms of avoiding these risks without using the disaster. So uh, our department and, and justice departments are working hard behind the scenes to try and find other ways to have uh, assist the country in terms of avoiding this risk without oh. using the Disaster Management Act. Minister, a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very, very much for joining us. That was our Health Minister, Dr. Joe Patler, giving us a big update and also talking to the vaccination warehouse that was opened yesterday or launched yesterday. Uh, quick Welcome back. And uh, that was um, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation, an interview with Minister of Health of the Republic of South Africa on uh, the manufacturing of vaccines in South Africa for uh, domestic as well as uh, regional distribution. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 22nd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, that was uh, the voice of Phyllis Hyman and the tune entitled Walk Away. And uh, right now we want to move into our concluding segment. Uh, It is an extensive report on uh, African and world news uh, from uh, CGTN, uh, Africa Live. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to the world today on CGTN. I'm Mahe Mutua in Nairobi. Here now are your top stories. Saudi Arabia-led coalition denies bombing a prison in northern Yemen. Russia and the United States on a diplomatic offensive to quell rising tensions over Ukraine. And we update you on efforts to assist Tonga after a devastating volcanic eruption and tsunami. Welcome to the program. Now, the Saudi Arabia-led coalition has denied reports that it bombed a prison in northern Yemen. Yemen's Houthi group says 77 people were killed and around 200 others wounded in Friday's attack. The United Nations says more strikes were reported elsewhere in the country with children among the casualties. One attack on telecommunication facilities has disrupted internet services in large parts of the country. The Houthis on Monday attacked targets in the United Arab Emirates. Three people died after a drone attack on an oil facility in Abu Dhabi. The group says it was to retaliate against the UAE's role in a military offensive in Yemen last week. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned the latest strikes. The attack on Abu Dhabi is uh, an escalation that is regrettable and, in my opinion, is a a serious mistake independently of the fact that it is unacceptable. Now, uh, any bombardment uh, that targets civilians or that is not careful enough to uh, protect civilians is, of course, also unacceptable. Uh, What we need is to stop this vicious circle in which things get escalating one after the other. What we need uh, is to have, as we have been proposing uh, from long ago, a ceasefire together with the opening of harbor and uh, uh, airports, and uh, then uh, the beginning of a serious dialogue among the parties. This escalation needs to stop. In Syria, the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces says they've repelled an attack by the Islamic State on a prison. The IS was trying to break out inmates from the facility in the northeastern city of Hasaka, but their attempt was thwarted with the help of airstrikes by a U.S.-led coalition. One general commander of the forces tweeted all fugitives were arrested. But the Islamic State said Friday clashes were still ongoing nearby and in other neighborhoods. 
a critical moment in the struggle to resolve a tense standoff between the West and Russia over Ukraine. Top diplomats from Washington and Moscow met in Geneva Friday. It is the latest in a flurry of diplomatic activity after Russia began massing troops near the border with Ukraine months ago. Chris Jones has more now from Geneva. The mood was tense heading into the meeting between the U.S.'s Antony Blinken and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. Both sides saying they wanted to avoid conflict. Antony Blinken described it as a critical moment. This is uh, part of an ongoing effort uh, to de-escalate tensions and to prevent further Russian aggression. Russia has never, nowhere, not a single time, threatened the Ukrainian people through its official spokespersons. After 90 minutes of diplomatic discussions, both parties said there was more understanding. Neither Russia nor the US expected any major breakthroughs to come from the meeting here in Geneva. But one thing is clear, Moscow now expects a written response next week from the US. The US has agreed to send a written response to those demands over Ukraine and NATO. Sergei Lavrov described the meeting as open and useful, but not conclusive. We're waiting for the official answer written on paper to our suggestions. After that, we're going to meet again on our level. Let's not jump ahead. Antony Blinken says much will depend on Russia's next steps. I believe uh, we can carry forward this work of developing understanding agreements together that ensure our, our mutual security. But that's contingent on Russia stopping its aggression uh, toward Ukraine. Sergei Lavrov claimed here in Geneva that Russia has never threatened the people of Ukraine despite the buildup of troops at the border. The U.S. also called on Moscow to step back from non-military provocations such as cyber attacks. The two sides continue to disagree on a series of issues but insist the talks were constructive. Chris Jones, CGTN, Geneva. Russia is sending two battalions of S-400 surface-to-air missile systems to Belarus to join military drills there next month. Russian troops and hardware began arriving in the country this week. The military exercises will be held near Belarus's western border with Poland and Lithuania and close to its southern border with Ukraine. Moscow has said the 12 fighter jets and a Pantsir missile system would also be deployed to Belarus for the drills. Meanwhile, the United States announced large-scale NATO naval exercises in the Mediterranean to begin on Monday. The USS Harry Truman aircraft carrier will participate in the drills. China, Iran and Russia have completed joint naval exercises in the Gulf of Oman. The drills were held Tuesday to Thursday this week, that is, according to China's Ministry of National Defense. It involved missile cruisers, frigates and anti-submarine ships. China sent a missile destroyer, a supply ship and a number of helicopters. Forty members of the Chinese Navy Marine Corps were also involved. The sides said the exercise was aimed at deepening practical cooperation and building a maritime community with a shared future.
During this joint exercise, we conducted multiple sessions with the Iranian and Russian navies, such as round-the-clock navy gun firing, formation movement, and joint anti-piracy exercises. These sessions played a positive role in ensuring the safety of international shipping and enhancing the Chinese escort fleet's capability to carry out diversified tasks in the oceans. Now, Tonga says it's receiving humanitarian aid following a tsunami last weekend triggered by an underwater volcanic eruption. The remote Pacific Island nation was left isolated for days as communication lines were cut. An official says clean-up operations are underway with people gradually returning to work. Owen Poland reports from Auckland. A new report has just come out from the government of Tonga which says that 84% of the population has been affected by last week's end, weekend's eruption and tsunami. The biggest impact has been on water supplies and sanitation. But the other major issue facing the country now is the damage to the economy. It's estimated that 12,000 households who rely, they rely on agriculture and fishing and have suffered substantial losses because of the volcanic ash and the acid rain that's fallen on the islands. And the Tongan government says that communication between the islands remains an acute challenge. As one of Tonga's closest neighbours, a third Navy ship has been sent from New Zealand today with essential supplies like tarpaulins and also more drinking water and milk powder. China, Australia and Japan and the United States have also donated emergency supplies. Because Tonga is COVID-free, the international delivery flights have to follow strict protocols to prevent the spread of the virus. So the aid workers going into Tonga have to wear full protective equipment and there can't be any contact with Tongan people. As a result of those restrictions, one aid flight from Australia has had to be turned back after a member of the flight crew tested positive when they arrived. However, that flight has now been rescheduled rather as countries around the Pacific Rim step up their humanitarian aid to Tonga. Beijing has termed the U.S. decision to suspend flights by four Chinese airlines as unreasonable. The Chinese embassy in Washington has urged the United States to stop disrupting and restricting normal passenger flights operated by Chinese airlines. The U.S. announced on Friday that it would bar 44 flights to China in response to Beijing's move to suspend 44 U.S. flights over COVID concerns. The Chinese embassy says the policy of barring flights over positive COVID cases has been applied equally to Chinese and foreign airlines in a fair, open and transparent way. U.S. President Joe Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida have agreed to boost economic and trade ties by setting up a new ministerial-level dialogue. The two sides are expected to work on a number of areas, including export controls, supply chains and technology investments. During a virtual meeting on Friday, the two leaders expressed desire for the swift resolution of trade issues. Bloomberg News says this signals, signals the two sides were unable to agree yet over whether to ease or eliminate tariffs imposed on Japanese steel and aluminium imports by the Trump administration in 2018. Meanwhile, the United States reported nearly 880,000 new COVID cases on Friday. That's according to Johns, Johns Hopkins University. 
The number of new cases has stabilized in recent days, leading to hopes the worst of the Omicron wave is now over. However, the country saw a record number of hospitalizations on Thursday and deaths having been averaging about 2,000 a day through January. Meanwhile, reports say child COVID cases have spiked dramatically across the country. Nearly 9.5 million children in the U.S. have tested positive for the virus since the start of the pandemic. The Chinese mainland has reported 23 new local COVID cases. The port city of Tianjin found six. Henan province reported four infections. Guangdong province reported three cases, all in Zhuhai city. And the capital Beijing reported 10 new infections. Starting today, anyone entering Beijing must show a negative test taken within 48 hours before arrival and be tested again within 72 hours after arrival. Well, that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from across the African continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. So this is it. I'm just about to be shot. Here, bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about three critical <laughs> bridges here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Yeah, gas just came in. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. Just got to be careful here with some gunshots. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. It's the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from the front clear line. view of this front line position.
is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Security concerns mount in Nigeria after insurgents kidnapped 20 children near the town of Chibok. Ghana seeks answers after deadly accident involving a truck transporting mining explosives. And Africans urge to continue being vigilant despite a decline in the latest wave of COVID-19 infections. Welcome to you wherever you're tuning in. This is Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Mahia Mutua in Nairobi. Also coming up, Nigerians to pay more than twice the current prices for fuel. That's if a new recommendation is adopted. And in sports, the preliminary draw for next year's Africa Cup of Nations in Cote d'Ivoire takes place in Douala. Welcome to the program. We begin in Nigeria, where jihadists have killed at least two people and kidnapped about 20 children in Borno State. According to the community leader from Chibok, Ayuba Alamson, the attack was the third in recent days. It comes as Nigeria struggles with a string of abduction for ransom attacks on schools by criminal gangs over the last year in its northwestern states. Around 1,500 school children were kidnapped last year and about 20 mass abductions in schools across the region. Well, for the very latest on that story, CGTN's Tesem Akende joins us from Abuja in Nigeria. Tesem, this is yet another worrying sign of deteriorating security in parts of the country. What is the latest you can tell us on the attack in Borno State? Yes, indeed. The latest is that the locals from PM village, which was attacked by the, uh, by the terrorists, are gradually returning back to the communities. Uh, many of them had uh, run away for their safety when the, uh, the, 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 the attackers came in and operated for about three hours, burning houses, burning vehicles, and looting shops, and of course carrying away uh, the children, which they did. So uh, there's still apprehension in the land. There's tension. They are returning gradually. Many of them were in the bushes, but it's, of course, yes, many of them are coming back. But of course, they are hoping that there will be more or there will be increased uh, military presence. Of course, there's military presence at the moment, but they are hoping that, yes, indeed, there will be more security personnel deployed to the area to keep the peace. And uh, Tessim, we're hearing that the abductions happened near the town of Chibok. How will this then impact efforts to convince those who had fled the area to return? Yes, uh, since uh, the invasion in 2004, uh, talking about the invasion on Chibok community, the Nigerian government stationed a military, uh, 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 a military formation there. Uh, they've done really well in building confidence of the people to re remain there. But beyond that, there have been a lot of civil-military relations being carried out, not just in Chibok, but across the country, especially within the northern, northeastern and northwestern parts of the country, where which have had uh, a lot of invasions by military, uh, uh, by, by terrorists. So 
uh, what the military or what the government is doing is that, look, uh, that military formation has been there since 2014, but of course there's a lot of civil military relations building on the confidence of the locals in the area. So uh, from time to time, these include uh, activities such as carrying out medical outreaches and of course carrying out campaigns to let them know that, look, of course Nigeria is bedeviled by these challenges, but look, we can overcome them. So this has been going on. And um, speaking with people, uh, locals in Meiduguri this morning, uh, which is uh, in Borno State, which has been the hotbed of insurgency, they are really confident because a lot of military personnel have been deployed to the area. So these are the things that, that are going on at the moment, and we're hoping that uh, before long there will be lasting peace, not just in Chibok, but in the entire uh, northern region, which has uh, had uh, a bad effect of this insurgency. And looking at possible uh, solutions then, what should the government do to effectively stop these attacks by insurgents? Yes, the government has uh, been putting together several approaches to tackling these attacks. In June last year, for instance, uh, the president was in Borno State where he addressed uh, troops keeping the peace there. He charged them to ensure that, look, these insurgents have to be defeated and defeated very squarely. So uh, there have been charges. Uh, of course, the government is also investing in a lot of um, hardware and software as well to ensure that these uh, vestiges, the remaining vestiges of the insurgents are tackled. Um, a lot, last year alone, we had, uh, we, the, the government received 12 super tucanos, which uh, it had procured from the, uh, the United States. And, of course, a lot of other armory is stored up in its arsenal at the moment. So uh, there's been a lot of efforts, uh, you know, by the military. Of course, there's also a partnership with other security agencies to ensure that, look, this, has, uh, this, this will be addressed and addressed squarely. Uh, just last month, uh, the president said uh, the, the, uh, we are at the last phase of uh, defeating the insurgency. So uh, a lot of thoughts are ongoing, a lot of... Uh, uh, tricks are being put uh, 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 and, and approaches are being evolved to ensure that these uh, uh, terrorists are tackled. And so if the assurances of the president are anything to go by, we're hoping that uh, his assurances, which he gave that we are indeed in the last phase of defeating the insurgents, uh, hope might just be on the, right, on the horizon that look before long there will be peace and peace, uh, lasting peace uh, uh, in Nigeria. All right, Tessem, thank you very much for that. Uh, CGTN's Tessem Akende joining us live from Abuja. Meanwhile, the United Nations humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, says the extremist insurgency led by Boko Haram and an offshoot of the Islamic State West Africa province is a dangerous and serious security threat. Griffiths is urging the world not to forget the continuing devastation caused by the militia groups in Nigeria. I think the insurgency is very, very, very dangerous, very uh, threatening. Um, everybody I spoke to up in Borno talked about Iswap being a very different animal, if you like, a different organization, obviously, from Boko Haram, um, with a view to administering territory and so forth. And this is a very different kind of operation and very difficult also to deter. Uh, and, and it's a grave... and clear and present danger, obviously, to the people and a priority for the government. 
In the Democratic Republic of Congo, at least 180 people are still missing and several are feared dead after a boat they were traveling in capsized in River Congo. Authorities say the boat was overloaded with passengers and cargo. CGTN's Chris Ochamringa has more now from Kinshasa. The boat capsized on the Congo River near the DRC's northwestern city of Mbandaka. The city's river commissioner, Kompitan Boyo, says the boat had about 600 passengers on board when it capsized late on Sunday. Search and rescue teams say 180 people are still missing. They haven't announced the death toll yet, but there are fears that many of the passengers are dead. Boat accidents are common in the DRC because the vessels are overloaded with passengers and goods. Most boat owners do not provide passengers with life jackets. Last year, more than 60 people died and hundreds were reported dead after a boat capsized on the Congo River in western DRC. The government warned boat owners against traveling at night in overloaded vessels, but many of them have not heeded the call. Chris Sochamringa, CGTN, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. In Ghana, the government says it's investigating a massive blast involving a truck transporting mining explosives that killed more than 10 people and wounded dozens more. The Thursday explosion destroyed scores of homes and left a huge crater in the village of Apiate, 300 kilometers west of the capital, Accra. Mohamed Abubakar has more. At least 13 people were killed and some injured when a truck carrying explosives collided with a motorcycle in the western part of Ghana. The truck owned by a company called Maxam was transporting the explosives to the Chirano gold mine. Hundreds of buildings were reduced to piles of rubble in the blast. Rescuers have been combing the site for survivors. Ghana's government is determined to establish what led to the tragic event. Vice President Mahamudu Bawumia made a visit to the explosion site on Friday. A major disaster befell us not only before the community here in Apieti, it befell the whole of Ghana. And that is why His Excellency the President, Nanado Danko Akufuado, asked me to lead this government delegation to come and assess the situation and see what we are going to do for the people. Authorities say the investigation into the incident will help determine whether the regulations covering transportation of explosives were complied with. On behalf of the President and the government, wish to express our deepest condolences to those who sadly lost their lives from this very, very uh, sad incident. At least 45 people are being treated in hospital. The government says it will cover the cost of hospital bills and help with relief aid for those affected. Mohamed Abubakar, CGTN. In Ethiopia, TPLF rebels have accused the deputy chief of staff of Ethiopia's military, the ENDF, of promising to continue the civil war. TPLF spokesperson Getachu Reda said the announcement goes against the public declaration of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed for peaceful dialogue. Here is CGTN's Girum Chala with more. TPLF's accusation came after General Abdullah Tadesa the deputy chief of staff of the Ethiopian army said in an interview that the NDF will certainly march on Tigray to finish the job of luring the enemy force into a level where they pose no more threat 
to the nation's security and sovereignty. This enemy is still alive. It is preparing a big army of hundreds of thousands of people. It's doing that under the pretext of defending Tigray. It also excavates the weapons it has buried for 27 years. Similarly, it's working to fix its operations capabilities. This force is not terminated. It must be terminated. Without terminating this force, Ethiopia will not guarantee its peace. TPLF spokesperson Getacho Reda in response said, and I quote, the general's declaration appears to be a snowball. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's public declaration on which the UN Secretary General's optimism was built. We are not losing sleep over his plan. End of quote. On the other hand, General Abeba says in the concluded first chapter of the war, TPLA force have lost big in all areas. TPLF did not continue with the number it had started the war with. Second, it did not return with the tanks and cannons it came with. It did not return with the same air defense system it came with. We have destroyed what the TPLF came to attack us with. They have lost their elite frontline army leaders, except those leading from 300 kilometers away. The war in Ethiopia's north has claimed thousands of lives and at least 2.5 million people need active day-to-day -day humanitarian assistance. The economic toll of the war is also something Ethiopia must address. With the proposed national dialogue, the political leadership of the country hopes to put an end to that war and any differences too. Gruntala CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. To Sudan now, where General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has announced the assigning of the Deputy Minister of the Sudanese Ministries to carry out the roles of ministers within the framework of a caretaker government. As CGTN's Daniel Arab Moy reports, this has ignited a fresh round of controversy because the country does not yet have a designated Prime Minister. Sudan has remained without an executive body after former Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok failed to form a government before his resignation. And the announcement of a caretaker government by military commander General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, it's believed, could pave the way for Sudan to hold elections without naming a prime minister to succeed Hamdok. But many residents are divided over this move. Some emphasize the need to fill the constitutional vacuum the country is experiencing in the absence of the government, saying it has negatively affected their lives. I am with Al-Burhan's decision to form a caretaker government because any ruling without a caretaker will have a vacuum, and any vacuum will result in things that they have no control over. General Al-Burhan's announcement has also angered some political forces and civil groups within the forces for freedom and change. This is an experience we were completely afraid of. It means a complete collapse of the Sudanese state, and so far 85 days have passed, and this regime has not been able to appoint a prime minister or appoint ministers, so it's resorted to the caretaker government. Analysts, however, believe the military component's resort to appointing a caretaker government was due to the halt in the executive work in the country. They say this is a great opportunity for the United Nations 
to help resolve the current political crisis in Sudan. Daniel Arab Moy, CGTN. Meanwhile, the United Nations office in Somalia has closed its passenger operations facility at Mogadishu's International Airport. The shutdown of the VIP terminal for UN staff and diplomats follows a directive from the government in December last year. Here is Mohamed Kahie with the details. The UN office in Somalia followed the directive in December by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in shutting down the significant facility. They regret the closure which was apparently prompted by allegations that are yet to be presented to them in detail for inquiry. International relations experts say the decision was unnecessary. The Somali government, if they felt there is some irregularities in the Mofcon office or the facilities, they have to check first and provide uh, proper evidence to the UN office in order to, to allow the U.S. office to take action against the Moscow and then just to issue the, the order to close the office. It wasn't a nice one. Somali government directed both U.N. and Amisom staff to use the VIP long at Adan Ade International Airport, which analysts say will congest the facility. As we know in Mogadishu, we have in a such uh, security problem. So, and then the, the airport itself now is having a lot of burden to Somali people. So, to bring again to the foreigners, including the diplomats, will make more burden to the Somali authority. So, I think it's better to let the, the terminal, Mofcon terminal, to be open and operate. But to make sure if there is any errors they were there, should be corrected. Political analysts argue that there is need for Somali authorities to closely monitor the borders, especially during the ongoing parliamentary poll process. As you were, we are in an electioneering period, and during the poll process there is a lot of financial security issues. That is why Somali government is very interested to closely monitor what is happening inside the airport. Most diplomats have influenced in the elections, that's why the government is interested in the activities inside the airport. The UN has been engaged in Somalia since its independence in 1960, undertaking activities that encourage development, support peace building and security, while mitigating the impact of conflict on the Somali people. Mohamed Kahie, CGTN, Mogadishu, Somalia. World Health Organization has reiterated the need to maintain efforts to co combat the COVID-19 pandemic and also says vaccination remains one of the best defenses against the severity of the disease. And while some countries are hopeful of an end to the most recent wave of the pandemic, African scientists are warning that Africa isn't out of the woods just yet. Wilkista Nyabwa has the details. For the first time since the start of the Omicron-fueled fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, Africa is seeing a significant drop in new cases and a dip in reported deaths. Countries like South Africa, which reported early cases of the Omicron variant, now have a cautious hope that the fourth wave of the pandemic is nearing its end. The signs are that the fourth wave is, is receding in, uh, in South Africa as it is as well in the continent, apart from uh, the uptick that we are seeing in some north, 
North African countries which are going through what would be their, their winter season, it's similar to the patterns that are being seen in some of the northern, northern countries. But the World Health Body warns that the continent has yet to turn the tide on the pandemic, adding that there is no room for complacency. What will happen next past Omicron? We do not know. Just like we did not know what would happen next, what would happen next after Delta. Could we get another more aggressive variant? That's also a possibility. On that note, yes, we still encourage everybody who is eligible to get vaccinated because we do not know what's happening next. Altogether, the WHO has approved 11 therapeutics to tackle COVID-19, but African countries continue to face impediments in accessing a full range of treatments. So far, Africa has received about 500 million COVID-19 vaccine doses and administered 327 million. Only about 10% of the continent's population is fully vaccinated. And scientists across the globe continue to emphasize that universal access to diagnostics, vaccines and therapeutics are likely to pave the shortest path to the end of the pandemic. Wilkerson Abwasijitian. Now, for decades, Tanzania has been a transit point for thousands of Ethiopian and Somali immigrants, with locals partly responsible for their continued flow into the country. The International Organization for Migration says illegal immigrants pay smugglers anything between 1600 and 3000 US dollars to make the journey to southern African countries. CGTN's Isaac Lucando has more. A vast land area and porous borders offer many illegal immigrants easy access into Tanzania. The government reports that in the last couple of years, over 15,000 of them have been apprehended in various parts of the country. This security analyst says, compared to some of its neighbors, Tanzania has advantages that attract many illegal immigrants in transit. Peace and security and the good quality of infrastructure in Tanzania could be one of the reasons that draw people to Tanzania because they know that it's easy to get from one point to another. Authorities say there's not enough manpower to catch the immigrants and locals who help them evade law enforcement officials. To address this, the government says this year it plans to increase the number of officers policing the country. We will continue to be vigilant to ensure that all those who enter the country follow the procedures and the laws of the country. The country's immigration authority says locals who help immigrants for financial gain are putting the country at risk. It says that there have been a number of reports of immigrants being involved in violent crimes in the country. While the number of illegal immigrants passing through the country has gone down from a high of 20,000 every year a decade ago to less than 15,000 currently, the problem still persists. Local smugglers and continued crisis in the home countries of the immigrants is making it harder for Tanzanian authorities to reduce that number further. At the request of Ethiopia, some 1,700 illegal immigrants were set free from Tanzanian jails early last year to be repatriated. Experts say joint strategies such as these may be the only way to solve the problem. If countries share the right information and if each nation is responsible for its own territory, then it could be the first step in helping to solve the problem of why these individuals leave their country and go elsewhere. Experts say the problem of illegal immigrants may take years to fix due to its complexity. 
They argue that improving the situation in the immigrants' home countries will dissuade them from making the treacherous journey south in the first place. Isaac Lukando, CGTN, Dar es Salaam. Let's head to Liberia now, where the Ducor Palace Hotel once stood as a mark of splendor and luxury. It was Liberia's pride and joy in the 1960s and one of the world's most luxurious five-star hotels. However, the ruins of this palace are now a den of squatters and drug addicts. The establishment that overlooks the Atlantic Ocean and the St. Paul River now serves as a memory of its golden age. This is the Duco Hotel, situated in Liberia's capital, Monrovia. At its height, it hosted VIPs such as former Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie. When it opened its doors in 1960, the Duco was one of the only five-star hotels in Africa, boasting a nightclub and air-conditioned rooms. It now lies in ruins after shutting its door in 1989, owing to years of back-to-back -back civil wars that killed more than 250,000 people. After Ellen Johnson Sirleaf took over, Gaddafi came and wanted to take over the building. He wanted to lease this place, and the government told the squatters that were here to leave the building. According to a 2011 government statement, the renovated hotel was due to have 151 rooms, restaurants, a shopping center, a tennis court and a casino, as well as provide jobs to the impoverished country. But then Liberia cut ties with Gaddafi's Libya in 2011, and Libya descended into civil war. The project, which was priced at $65 million, also fell afoul of another war. When the squatters left, they took everything out. They even took carpets, walls. They took everything out. As for Duco, some still remain hopeful that the once magnificent establishment can reclaim its former glory. Daniela Pearson, CGTN. Right, well, we're taking another short break here on Africa Live. Here's what's coming up. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, CGTN. And that will conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 22nd, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of Detroit's own jazz guitarist, Kenny Burrell, uh, from the 1963 album entitled Midnight Blue. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
What if you could have a career 
where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.